Before we begin, I just wanted to point out that today's episode has some sexual themes in it. There's nothing really too bad, but if you've got some little kiddos listening, you might want to give this one a listen first, just to make sure you're okay with it. In 1982, author Roald Dahl released what would go on to become a beloved children's tale, the BFG. Then, just last year in 2016, for anyone listening to this in the future, legendary director Steven Spielberg's 3D animated version of the children's book was released. The screenwriter who adapted Roald's book to the big screen was none other than Melissa Matheson. Haven't heard of her? That wouldn't surprise me. Screenwriters and authors don't typically get much of the spotlight. Sadly, Melissa passed away in 2015, so she wasn't able to see the BFG get released in theaters. Still, even if you haven't heard of Melissa's name before, you've most certainly heard of her work. That's made even more impressive considering that over the course of her career in Hollywood that spanned nearly 30 years, she had a hand in writing a total of five screenplays. Two of those five screenplays were projects that had Steven Spielberg as a director. Okay, maybe you can say three of the five. Melissa was also one of a total of ten writers who worked on the four different segments that went into The Twilight Zone, the movie. Each of the four segments had a different director, and Steven Spielberg was one of them. So maybe a more accurate way of saying it would be that two of Melissa's five screenplays in her three-decade-plus-long Hollywood career had Steven Spielberg and only Steven Spielberg as a director. One of those was the aforementioned The BFG. The other was a film you've probably heard of, maybe even seen. Speaking of 1982's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Despite being early on in Melissa's career, it wasn't the first major film that Steven Spielberg directed. After all, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out just the year before, in 1981. But there was someone who played a role in E.T. who was new to Hollywood. Little six-year-old Drew Barrymore's career is widely regarded as taking off thanks to her role as Gertie in E.T. Of course, that overlooks the other three movies she made before those, but have you ever seen Drew as a toddler in the 1978 made-for-TV movie called Suddenly Love? I didn't think so. Me either. But how could a little girl born in 1975 already star in her first movie in 1978? Well, for Drew Barrymore... You do that by being born into a family of actors. Her dad was an actor. Her mom was an aspiring actress. Her aunt was an actress. Her grandparents were actors. Her great-grandparents were actors. Her great-great-great-grandparents were actors. And the list goes on. One of those relatives in Drew Barrymore's impressive ancestry filled with actors was a man named Lionel. He was born in 1878 and lived until 1954. During his lifetime, Lionel Barry starred in 225 different films. Oh, and he also starred in plenty of theater roles, too. Maybe you remember him as the villain, Mr. Potter, in the 1946 classic Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life. But that's not the film we're looking at today. Fifteen years before It's a Wonderful Life, Lionel starred in another Christmas film, a short film actually called The Christmas Party, that was released in December of 1931. But that's not the only movie Lionel starred in that was released in 1931. The day after Christmas in 1931, December 26th, a film Lionel starred in called Madahari was released. 
haven't heard of it, don't worry, you're not alone. Meta Hari is someone that I'd venture to guess most people haven't heard of. But like screenwriter Melissa Matheson, you've heard of some of the things Meta Hari worked on. In this case, I'm not talking about a movie, but the real Meta Hari was an exotic dancer during World War I, and, according to many, she used her skills to gain information from French officers as she worked as a spy for the Germans. She's often referred to as one of the greatest spies of World War I. So whether or not you've seen the 1931 movie named after her or even heard her name, let's take some time to compare it to history and, as we do, learn more about Matahari's amazing story. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode, then, by process of elimination, you'll know which one was a lie. And we'll make sure to do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, most of the characters in the movie weren't real. Number two, Matahari had two children, both of whom died before she did. Number three, Matahari was not from the Dutch East Indies. Before we get back to our story today, I wanted to share something with you. Remember how recently I mentioned that I've got a merch store set up for Based on a True Story where you can get your own t-shirts? Well, that's true, but I also went ahead and put in an order for a bunch of stickers. So I've got a bunch of Based on a True Story stickers. If you want one, I'll trade you a sticker for a review. Let me know what you think of the show, either on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. Take a screenshot of it so I know who you are. Apple Podcasts only has usernames, not real names or emails. And then email that screenshot along with an address to send the sticker to. Then I'll send out your sticker as soon as I can. And if you're driving, don't worry. You can find all of these steps and see a picture of the stickers over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash giveaway. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash giveaway. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Matahari. Our story today begins with some text in the movie that sets up the timeline. According to the film, it's 1917. France was in the middle of war and dealt harshly with anyone they found to be traitors or spies. Although this statement is quite vague, the key points are setting the story up to be in France in 1917. The war mentioned, of course, is World War I. By the time 1917 rolled around, World War I had been raging on for three years and France was in the thick of it. After this vague introductory text, we see three men tied to posts being shot by a firing squad. The men in the movie aren't ever really identified, but they're shown primarily to get across the message that we just read in the text. France takes spies seriously. In other words, they're shot. This scene isn't based in history, but the basic gist is true. There were many spies who were shot during World War I. It's during this scene that we first hear the name Matahari. She's mentioned by an investigator named Dubois. He believes Mata is a spy, but the officer he's with doesn't agree. Dubois isn't a real person, but the woman he's talking about is. Of course, we already talked a little bit about her in the introduction to this episode, but because this movie starts in 1917, let's take a couple minutes to learn more about the real Matahari. Let's start with her name. Matahari wasn't her real name. Her real name was Margarita Gertruda Zila, 
and she was born on August 7th, 1876 in Leowarden to Adam and Anta Zila as the first of four children. In case you're not familiar with where Leowarden is, that's only about 10 miles or 16 kilometers south of the Wadden Sea in the Netherlands. It's almost due east of Manchester in the UK, across the North and Wadden Seas that separate the island of the UK with mainland Europe. On the other side, it's almost due west of Hamburg, Germany. Hopefully that gives some sort of a geographical uh, location in your mind so you can see where that's at. Growing up in Leo Warden, little Margarita benefited from her father's rather successful business moves. Most notably, he ran a hat shop and then took the profits he made to invest into the oil industry early on. As a result, Margarita was sent to some private schools that offered her a great education from a young age. If things continued on this trajectory, her life might have been quite different. Then, tragedy struck. In 1889, those investments turned sour, and even though we don't know the specifics of how it happened, what we do know is that Adam, Margarita's father, essentially lost all of his money. No more private schools for little Margarita, who would have been about 13 at this time. Then, tragedy struck again. After going from some of the more affluential people in Leo Warden to all of a sudden having no money, the stress became too much, and Adam and Ante got divorced. Now a teenager, Margarita's life all of a sudden took a completely different path. Then, tragedy struck again. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history, and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Two years after losing almost everything, including her parents' marriage, Margarita lost something even more important, her mother. Aunt Azila passed away in 1891. Adam tried his best to raise four kids on his own. A couple years later, he remarried to a woman named Susanna, but any hopes of having a wonderful family life was gone. 
Margarita left her father and stepmom and moved in with her godfather about 12 miles, or 19 kilometers, to the south of Leowarden in a town called Sneak. Then, at the age of 18, Margarita did something that would guarantee she'd never return home. She answered a newspaper ad placed by a man looking for a wife. That man was Rudolf McLeod, a captain in the Dutch army who was 20 years older, and he was looking for someone to move to Indonesia to be his wife. Well, at the time, they called Indonesia the Dutch East Indies. Less than a month before her 19th birthday, Margarita Zila became Margarita McLeod when she married Rudolf on July 11, 1895. Thanks to her marriage, she enjoyed the benefits of Rudolf's family's money, which he apparently had enough of to put Margarita right back into the high society. But, as they say, money doesn't buy happiness. Rudolf and Margarita had two children together, but their marriage was rocky at best. At worst, Rudolf would come home drunk and regularly beat Margarita. That's something they actually mention in the movie at one point, not only that, but Rudolf also had a concubine, basically a second wife, but not technically a second wife. Margarita grew increasingly unhappy with her situation, but she still had two kids that she loved. Then tragedy once again struck when both of Margarita's children got really sick amid some speculation that someone might have poisoned their family at an attempt to get to Rudolf. Sadly, little Norman MacLeod passed away, Margarita's other child, Jean, got better, but it was essentially the final straw in their marriage. On August 30th, 1902, Rudolf and Margarita moved back to the Netherlands, and Margarita immediately left Rudolf, taking Jean with her. Four years later, a court gave her official custody of Jean when Rudolf and Margarita were divorced. Oh, sure, the courts declared that Rudolf was supposed to pay child support, but he didn't. Yet again, all of a sudden, Margarita was without money and forced to fend for herself, and now for her daughter as well. So she did what most single parents do, anything that she could to provide for her daughter. Then, tragedy struck again. Well, at least for Margarita. After a typical visit to her father's place, Rudolf simply refused to return Jean. Defeated and without the finances to be able to fight it in court, Margarita decided to put her family life behind her. After this latest tragedy for her, she decided to leave that life of hardship and adversity behind. But how could she do this with no family, no money, and essentially no career education? Well, she decided to leave the Netherlands and move to Paris. It was here that after a brief stint in the circus, she tried dancing in a saloon one evening and immediately became a hit. She pulled from her experience living in Indonesia to start wearing jewels and very little clothing as she danced seductively all around, all eyes on her. She began to eat up the attention she received as a stark contrast to most of her life up to that point. But if she were to complete her new persona, she would have to take a new name. So she decided to go with Madahari, a name many believe she actually started calling herself while in Indonesia. Matahari, by the way, is an Indonesian term meaning eye of the day, basically the sun. But here in Paris, it took on a whole new meaning. For years, things seemed to finally be turning around for her. 
She was learning how to be a completely independent woman, earning her own living, and a fine one at that. But then, on July 28, 1914, the world changed when it plunged into war. It was the Great War, or as we know it now, World War I. That was just 10 days before Matahari's 38th birthday. Many historians think it was because of her age as she danced nearly naked. She almost never went without a bra because she was very self-conscious about her breast size. Many think that it was because she just started to gain some weight as she got older and earned more money. Or maybe it was because Parisians all of a sudden found a lot of their extra spending money going to the war effort. No matter the reason, Matahari's career started to see a downturn after the war began. We don't know all of the details because... Much of this isn't documented, but most historians believe it was somewhere around this point that Mata started to rely more and more on the financial support from military men who stopped in to see her dance. Well, they cared more about spending time with her company than they did seeing her dance, or really, I think you get the idea. And finally, we're caught up to almost the point to where the movie begins. I know we haven't really talked much about the movie to this point, but because I'm guessing most people these days don't really know who Matahari was, I think knowing her backstory is important to understand what she did and why she did the things she did. Her early days weren't easy by any means, and now we know why. Oh, and by the way, Matahari is portrayed by Greta Garbo in the film. Going back to the movie now, after the introductory scene, we're introduced to two other main characters in the film. One of them is a pilot who we see landing on an airfield. His name is Lieutenant Alexis Rosanoff, and in the film, he's played by Ramon Navarro. The other is General Serge Shubin, and he's played by Lionel Barrymore. According to the movie, the lieutenant is from the Imperial Russian Army, and he's arrived to deliver a dispatch to the French ambassador. Then, he has to stick around for the French ambassador to craft his response. During that time is when a bulk of the movie takes place. Let's start with some of the facts that we can compare this to. The movie doesn't mention any dates other than the vague 1917 date at the very beginning, so we don't really know what month this is, which is important because the Imperial Russian Army was dissolved in 1917. More specifically, it dissolved as a part of the dissolution of the entire Russian government during the Russian Revolution. There's many dates that go into that. It wasn't like it was a one-day thing. But the first revolution began in February of 1917, with most historians saying that it was done in November of that same year. You can learn a little bit more about this in the Hunt for Red October episode of the podcast. We also know from history that the Russians were allies of the English, Americans, Italians, Japanese, French, and others during the Great War. So it's very possible that the Imperial Russian Army could have been around during the timeline of the movie. It's also plausible that there would have been messages sent to and from the French. Would they have sent them by airplane? Maybe. Some were. Some were sent via telegraph, which was invented at the end of the 18th century. However, it's not likely that the scene we saw in the movie happened because Rosanoff and Shubin were, well, fictional characters. Which, if you've seen the movie, you'll know that this throws a major wrench into the historical accuracy of the film because those two characters play a huge role in the movie. In fact, most of the movie revolves around their interactions with Matahari. Rosanoff was supposedly Matahari's love interest, while Shubin plays a crucial role in Mata's espionage. 
Well, if they're not real, then, as you can probably guess, there's not a lot of the storyline in the film that's based on truth. Although, as I say that, going back to the film, the next scene where we see Greta Garbo's version of Matahari dancing for the first time, and the only time throughout the film, she's doing so in front of a big statue of Shiva. There actually was a magazine article that reported about one of Matahari's dance routines where she did that same sort of dance in front of Shiva. Part of that was because Mata's mystique was that of being an Eastern goddess. Because of her exotic-sounding name, seductive dances, and, well, being naked most of the time that she did them, a lot of the French onlookers were sucked into her charm. Mata would also commonly dress in Indonesian and Eastern Islander costumes that were indeed quite authentic to help sell her image. As a result, a lot of people believed her when she claimed to be a Java native. After all, that sounds a lot more exotic to the French than her true story of being a Dutch immigrant. And, as we learned, she did live in Indonesia for some time, so she certainly could have played the part. In fact, there's a lot of historical records and stories that mention Matahari's mother as being Javanese, but most historians believe that was all part of the tale she spun to help sell her celebrity. Oh, and by the way, Java is one of the islands of Indonesia. But perhaps that opening dance number by Matahari in the film is probably one of the more accurate moments in the movie. It's after this that the plotline involving the fictitious Rosanoff, Shubin, and the French investigator trying to prove Matahari is a spy, Dubois, starts coming into play. But if that plotline isn't true, that begs the ultimate question. What is the true story of Matahari? Well, even though Rosanoff may not have been the real Matahari's love interest, that doesn't mean she didn't have any romantic relationships. We already learned a little bit about that earlier. In particular, though, there was a man that the newspapers of the day only referred to as Father Mordelak as being Matahari's lover in 1917. So maybe Mordelak was the person that they based Russian Lieutenant Rosanoff on? Or maybe not. The real Father Mordelak was referred to as father because after Matahari was caught, he disappeared and was found many years later hiding out in a Spanish monastery. I don't really think he was a Russian officer, but that's getting ahead of our story. According to the movie, a French intelligence officer named Dubois starts getting suspicious of Matahari. And it's for good reason, too, because in the film she makes contact with a man named Andriani, at a gambling establishment of some sort that they refer to in the movie as the Pavilion. The movie doesn't really mention who Dubois is. We only know he's trying to prove Matahari is a German spy. But like Rosanoff and Shubin, both Dubois and Andriani are fictional characters. Although there was a French Secret Service agent named Georges Ledeau, who probably provided a lot of inspiration for the character of Dubois. Oh, and Andriani at one point mentions the use of a new weapon called a tank and how it was used, according to the film, yesterday at the Somme. While the movie is correct in stating that tanks were used for the first time in history at the Battle of the Somme, the timeline is completely off. Remember how the movie starts with text saying it's 1917? Well, the Battle of the Somme took place between July 1st, 1916 and November 18th, 1916 with tanks making their first appearance on September 15, 1916. Anyway, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of details about exactly what types of deals Matahari did, or even if she did them at all. A lot of that seems to be lost to history, or at least I was unable to track any of it down, so if you do have more details about it, I'd love to hear. 
What we do know about the true story is that as the war raged on, Matahari didn't stay in Paris all the time. She traveled around the regions owned or controlled by the Allies. There's been a lot of speculation about exactly what she did on those trips, or even more so, why she took those trips. On one hand, it could make perfect sense. When the war broke out, men in the military helped provide financial support for Mata's career, otherwise declining career. So maybe she was just trying to go to the troops, spread the love, so to speak, in exchange for money, of course. Or maybe it was something else. The French thought it was something else. In an age when everyone was suspicious of everyone, Matahari didn't really have much going for her. She was an exotic dancer. We don't really know if the French authorities knew where she was really from, but even if they did, it probably wouldn't help. In fact, it probably would have made it worse. You see, when the rest of the world erupted into war in 1914, the Netherlands officially declared themselves neutral. Technically, they stayed neutral throughout the war, but is it really possible to stay neutral when just about every country around you is at war? Well, they might not have officially gone into battle, but history now tells us that during World War I, the Netherlands were tied up in espionage like you wouldn't believe. Of course, that's looking at things through the lens of history. We don't really know if the French knew about all of that at the time, but they were suspicious. And they thought Matahari was in the middle of it all, spreading information to the Germans. As the movie comes to a close, Matahari gets arrested and put on trial. And in the trial, there's not a lot of great evidence against her. But, according to the film, they don't need a lot of great evidence. They're able to convict Greta Garbo's version of Matahari in a trial that's mostly smoke. As a result, Matahari has a date set with the firing squad. It's an ending that's, well, really sad. But as we learned earlier, the whole premise behind how Matahari was charged with the storyline of Rosanoff is fictional. The truth is, well, even more sad. Do you remember the name George Ledeau? He's the French intelligence guy that the character of Dubois in the movie is probably closest to. Well, the real Ledeau, who was the head of French intelligence, actually hired Matahari to share information that she gathered from the military men she was always around. In particular, one of the stories is actually somewhat similar to something that happens in the movie. Well, not really, sort of. But according to that story, which has been debated by historians, basically says that Matahari fell in love with a young Russian captain named Vadimi, sort of like the Russian Rosanov in the movie. But that's where the similarities end. According to this version of history, Vadimi was only 18 years old and was assigned to a small town by the name of Vittel, which is south of Nancy, France. And to be able to visit Vittel, though, Matahari had to get permission. Remember, this is wartime. To get permission, she had to get it from the head of French intelligence, Georges Ledeau. He agreed to give her a pass to go to Vittel if Matahari would agree to become a French spy and pass off any information that she got to him. And it's true that many of the men who enjoyed Mata's company over the years were, in fact, German soldiers. It wasn't only German soldiers, of course, but there were plenty in there. So basically, Ledeau used Matahari as a spy for France with her cooperation starting in 1916. We don't really know why, but at some point, Ledeau became convinced that Matahari was, in fact, actually a German spy. Was that the real reason he hired her? to try to convert her into some sort of a double agent? 
We don't really know the real reasons behind these sort of questions. Although it's worth pointing out that some historians have wondered why Ladeau would try to hire Matahari as a spy at all. At the time, she was a popular figure in France. She wasn't exactly undercover, and everyone always knew where she was. After all, she enjoyed being the center of attention. Anyway, after agreeing to be a spy for Ladeau and getting her pass to visit her lover in Vittel, that's exactly what Matahari did. When she got back to Paris, Ladeau didn't waste any time in using his new asset. Matahari's first mission was to travel to Belgium, which was occupied by the enemy, Germany, and Ladeau wanted Matahari to use a connection of an ex-lover to get her close to a high-ranking German officer. She did, and it worked. This officer, someone named Karl, spilled the beans to Matahari, and he told her a lot about the German military's movements in North Africa. Matahari had to have been thrilled. Not only did she do well on her first assignment as a spy, but Ladeau had promised he'd pay a million francs for the information she got. It's a little tough to convert that into U.S. dollars today, but it'd probably be in the ballpark of around $25 million. It's a lot of money, surely enough for Matahari to retire in luxury. But she never got that money. Instead, Ladeau, who was already convinced Matahari was actually a German spy, used the assignment he set up as the evidence he'd need to convince everyone that she was a spy. On February 13, 1917, the police arrived at Matahari's hotel room and found her calmly eating breakfast. They arrested her for espionage with the power of a warrant for her arrest. It's hard to say what Matahari's fortune might have been if so many didn't already have it in their heads that she was a spy. Lido apparently set her up and used that as evidence. When she went into the courtroom, the judge was already biased. We know this from something he would later say when he'd say that from the first time he spoke to Matahari, he knew she was being paid by the Germans. His purpose wasn't to find her guilty or innocent, but rather uncover the proof of what he already knew. Despite Ladeau's assignment, there wasn't really enough evidence to convict her. There wasn't any proof of documents being passed to the Germans, not one. But that didn't matter. According to the movie, the trial and conviction seemed to happen really quickly. Then Matahari seemingly does herself in when she bursts out in an attempt to avoid having the Rosanoff called to the stand. If you remember in the film, Rosanoff's plane crashed on its way to deliver the dispatch back to the Russians, and he lost his eyesight. Well, that little bit in the movie probably came from another of Matahari's lovers, who apparently lost his eyesight in a battle somewhere and refused to testify on Mata's behalf. While the trial didn't happen like the movie shows, the prosecutors finally got what they wanted when Matahari eventually admitted under heavy interrogation to accepting money from the Germans as a spy. Today, many historians believe that the truth was probably closer to Matahari simply accepting money from the Germans the same way she did from the French, Russians, or anyone who would be willing to pay for her company. It was how she made a living. Being interrogated probably didn't help. But still, other historians say that Matahari certainly spied for the Germans. She just wasn't the master spy that the French thought she was at the time. None of that mattered for Matahari. The French had the confession they needed. Oh, and it's worth pointing out that the movie really speeds up the timeline here. Greta Garber's version of Matahari was only in her cell for a brief time before soldiers came and took her away. In truth, Matahari spent about nine months in prison, 
before she was finally convicted. During that time, she wrote letters to anyone she could in an attempt to explain her innocence. It didn't work. The movie ends before it shows Matahari's final demise, but the implication is clear as she's being led to face the firing squad. Sadly, that's true. The French soldiers arrived at Matahari's prison cell in Paris and transported her to a rifle range in Vincennes, just a few kilometers outside the center of Paris. There, she faced a firing squad. She was 41 years old. Actually, if you want to hear more about what really happened in Matahari's final moments, I've got a bonus episode that is a newspaper article from 1917 explaining her final goodbye. You can check that out by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. The Dutch dancer who had lived through so much tragedy only to meet a tragic ending still managed to die with some form of dignity. She refused to be tied to the stake. She refused to wear a blindfold, instead looking her fate in the eye. Moments before she was shot, she blew a kiss to the men in the firing squad that faced her. Thirty years after that, one of the men involved in prosecuting her case was quoted as saying about Matahari that, quote, there wasn't enough evidence to flog a cat, end quote. Matahari's case has been something that historians have debated for decades. One of the big reasons why there's been so much debate about her case is because we still don't have all of the documents. In 2001, a group of Dutch historians and enthusiasts formed the Matahari Foundation and tried to get the French government to reopen her case. You can't change the past, but they tried to change how the world thinks of Matahari in the future. And thanks in part to their work, they'll be celebrating a major victory this year. You see, it's only this year that the French army has agreed to declassify Matahari's trial and case documents that have been sealed for decades. Well, I guess you could say longer than that. While I haven't really mentioned it up to this point, there's a reason why this episode is being released when it is. This week, we can say a century instead of decades because the last day of Matahari's life was exactly 100 years ago this Sunday on October 15th, 1917. Two years after her mother's death, Margarita Zelli's daughter, Jean, passed away. She was 21. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about Mata Hari, there's a lot of great books that cover her controversial life. A few to start with that I'd recommend would be Femme Fatale, Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Mata Hari by Pat Shipman, or Mata Hari, The True Story by Russell Warren Howe. And of course, there's the patron special bonus episode I'll have going up as well. I'll put a link to those books and plenty of other resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, most of the characters in the movie weren't real. Number two, Mata Hari had two children, both of whom died before she did. Number three, Mata Hari was not from the Dutch East Indies. Did you find out which one was a lie? The lie is number two. While Matahari Margarita Zila did have two children, she only outlived one of them. As we learned at the very end, Jean passed away at the age of 21, two years after her mother. We don't really know if Jean knew the fate of her mother. 
it wouldn't surprise me if she didn't. Remember, there was a lot going on. World War I ended in 1918, and it's not like the French government was keen to share all of their intelligence information right away, as evidenced by the fact that they're only now just declassifying a lot of it. What did you think about Matahari's incredible story? If this is the first time you've heard her story, I hope you have the desire to learn more about her. Maybe offer a moment of silence this Sunday in honor of her passing. Even if she was a spy, she was the victim of tragedy after tragedy and despite those hardships, and if nothing else, I think she deserves to have her story told. If you end up watching the movie, or if you've already seen it, or one of the other movies that's been made about her life, hop on to the Based on a True Story group on Facebook and let's chat about it. Oh, and don't forget, you can pick up your own Based on a True Story t-shirt and merch over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. You can also follow the show on Instagram, which is at Based on a True Story Podcast. Over there, I like to post some photos of the faces and places behind each episode of the podcast. So if you want to see what Matahari actually looked like, I'll be posting some of those up on Instagram. You can also find me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>